And this is our plan of attack. Banks have become an essential threat to our democracy. So consider this justice. Thank you for listening to Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com, the number one listener-supported radio station on the Internet. Please help support this station so this battle can continue forward. Revolution Radio! The opinions expressed on this radio station, its programs, and its website by the hosts, guests, and call-in listeners or chatters are solely the opinions of the original source who expressed them. They do not necessarily represent the opinions of Revolution Radio and FreedomSlips.com, its staff, or affiliates. You're listening to Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com, 100% listener-supported radio, and now we return you to your host. Welcome to Sacred Matrix, a divine paradigm of love and universal consciousness, with your host, Janet Kira Lesson and Dr. Sasha Lesson. Together, we transform the world. And now, here are your hosts, Janet Kira and Dr. Sasha Lesson. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Sacred Matrix on Revolution Radio at revolution.radio. And I'm your host, Janet Carolesson, with my co-host, Dr. Sasha Alex Lesson, and our producer, Thomas Becker. And our guest today is Randy Kramer. And I want to tell you a little bit about Randy before we go live with Randy and Dr. Lesson. So Randy Kramer has been going public for a couple years now. And he's been talking about his service for the Mars Defense Force. And the MDF is part of the Earth Defense Force, a UN unacknowledged special access program. And he was recruited in 1987. Getting a lot of background noise. Can somebody please mute? Okay. Anyway, he was recruited in 1987 into the U.S. Marine Corps Special Section. He began a 20-year tour of duty working for the Mars Defense Force, which is a primary defense unit that protects the Mars Colony Corporation. And Kramer said that he is now allowed to speak publicly about his experiences. Dr. Lesson, are you there? I'm getting a lot of static. Um, let, let, let me hang up the studio and, and call it back. Okay, thanks. It's coming from the studio. Okay, good. Thanks. Bear with us, everybody. Okay. Now you're back on. Okay. Thank you, everybody, for your patience. Dr. Liss and Sasha, are you there? I am indeed here, and uh, I could not have been making that noise because my mic was muted. Uh, oh, good. <laughs> so it's, yeah, we're really glad to have Randy. Randy's been one of the good guys. Uh, believe it or not, there's some people high in government who said, do what you can to preserve what's left of our country. 
Uh, and uh, Randy is part of this group of white hats, soldiers whose job it is, is to stop the, uh, the junk stuff from coming down and tell the truth to everybody. So I'm really glad you're here, Randy. Thank you, Sasha. It's my pleasure to be here. Oh, we're so glad you're here. We had so much fun at the uh, Albuquerque Stargate to the Cosmos 2018 Expo. And um, we were doing workshops and panels and lectures uh, for four days straight. And I know you, you did a number of things. And I was sitting on the final pa panel, the big picture with you. And we talked about the big picture. But let's start at the beginning. Um, so... You've been doing this for a long time, and are you still uh, six years? I think six. I don't think it's been quite seven years, but I think it's been a little over six years. Okay, and so tell us um, what's been happening in your journey talking about this. So you were given permission to talk about it. Tell us a little bit about that. Well. Um, apparently there was some decisions that were made by my superiors and some other superior officers within the covert military space program that it was time to have some official spokespersons, uh, talking to the public because secrecy was more of a danger than telling the truth. And we could justify telling the truth and, uh, stepping outside of any of the normal secrecy agreements, because it was simply a matter of survival of civilization uh, and the rule of law as we understand it to be able to get people involved in the process and knowing what's going on in the process so that there can be some restoration of legality uh, within these programs, which we are certainly opposed to the rogue uh, uh, lawless elements within the programs, which uh, have gone oh, let's just say above and beyond uh, doing sort of naughty and bad things when we think that it's not necessary or required uh, to do things that way and that it is perfectly viable to get our job done while respecting the law and respecting the nominal ethics and morality of humankind. So it was decided that the spokesperson had to be picked and there was a short list of officers that was drawn up and apparently that was whittled away at until it came down to me and a couple other people. And uh, we were all asked if we wanted to go public with our story and be the spokesperson. And I, of course, said no at first. But after <laughs> some convincing, I said yes. And apparently the other two officers said flat out no. And that meant that I got the short end of the stick or the short straw, as it were, and it became my job. Wow. And what year was that? Do you remember when that was? Uh, when they asked I want to say that was in either, and you'll forgive me for uh, not being 100% accurate if like this, I'm missing this. It was in March or April of either 2012 or 2013, but it's been years now that I'm not 100% sure. I'd have, to go, I'd have to go back and look at when I did my first interview with Dr. Michael Sala, which was the first public interview that I did and see when that was done and then, you know, mark that. Yeah, that's pretty accurate. Randy, I'm concerned, uh, you know, uh, you said, you know, there's two different things here. You got permission to talk or as it was, is not what it sounds like. It sounds like you accepted the orders. There was this, this, this that came with the job. You took the job. You, took, you got 
ordered to do it. Is that right? Or what do you, no, I, I no, no, no. I was, I was requested. I was requested, and and at first I was, I was a little upset about being asked, and so I was a little emotional in my response, and I was kind of angry, and so my brigadier general and I had a little bit of a well. He listened politely, and I shouted for a little while, uh, and then he gave me some what I what again were not what I will say compelling reasons or crowbar reasons. I wasn't uh, forced or compelled in that sort of way, but he uh, expressed through a lengthy conversation with me what were very rational and reasonable reasons why I might want to say yes to this. And after a lengthy consideration, I decided to say, yeah, okay, I'll say yes. But I was not compelled or ordered to. I was requested. uh, And after much contemplation and a little convincing uh, because I needed to hear some of the rational arguments that were being made and some of the things that might be better off for me personally as well. And so I, I agreed in the end, but it was, I was not ordered. Okay. No. And I, and nor okay. do I follow so, so, the orders from the command staff. Uh, I am an independent field commander and I am uh-huh. allowed to do as I see fit and say what I see fit and talk to people about whatever I want to. I certainly discuss things with them and I, listen to their advisement and sometimes I take their suggestions, but I'm in no way at this point being ordered what to say or what not to say by them. They think that's very important that I am uh, independently free to say what I want to say and do what I feel is necessary to do yeah. my job. I understand in, in governance, we call that you've got a commission or, or uh, you know, a, that, you know, that's, that it is, that's your mission or commission. That's, that's what you correct. accepted to do. I'll, I'll do this correct. job. That is very correct. My- that is correct. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. So, what were some of your concerns that that uh, you why you didn't want to do this? Um, remember, I well, I mean, I think that my biggest reason was, you know, just are you kidding? I don't want to be quote unquote that guy. I have no desire to be, uh, as the Japanese say, the tallest nail, which is the first one to get hit on the head. Um, right. I was more, I was more content to keep my private life. I was more content to keep a low profile. Uh, I am not a person who seeks the spotlight. I am not a person who uh, desires to be up in front of a lot of people or get a lot of attention. That's not who I am. Uh, So there were a lot of reasons at first for me to just say no. Uh, But Mm -hmm. after, again, some very reasonable discussions about it and a list of positive reasons, which made sense to me, I, I agreed. So, uh, well, but it what was were some mostly of the items, just, the positive readings, uh, reasons. Well, um, one second, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I just had dinner. Okay. Um, so okay. I think the, uh, the, well, the three reasons that my brigadier general gave me right off were that it was, it is standard protocol for personnel who have exited a 20-year program to experience a certain amount of psychotronic suppression because the sort of fear by some of these people is that personnel might go uh, loose cannon on them. And that, and that isn't just to say verbally. That is to say that they might go loose cannon in a physical manner and do harm to others if there is not some suppression on their abilities and their thinking process. Um, so I was assured that whatever suppression was happening on my thinking or mental processes would end. Uh, I was also assured that I would get a security clearance upgrade and that I would get regular briefings with my brigadier general and that I would be free to ask any and all questions and I would be given any and all answers 
and I would be given a security clearance equal to him, which would enable me to get access to all of the intelligence files, the intelligence staff, uh, access to uh, notes and minutes from command staff meetings uh, that would help me do my job better. So that was a fairly compelling reason, to be honest with you. And I decided to say yes. I had I had a lot of questions at that point, and the notion that I was going to be able to have all of my questions answered at any time and get the answers that I wanted was was a very compelling reason in and of itself. Wow! Did they agree to keep pay, Did they agree to keep paying you uh, your salary? Uh, uh, no, as an independent field commander, I am responsible for my own command, including. Uh, fundraising and economics but they did but he did say that i was more than welcome to uh a book which was my memoirs of my life experience and that and some of the other contracts that i have been given are indeed to uh help compensate for my not receiving a salary but it's kind of important to note that if I was receiving a salary and I was receiving a check, I would be told that I'm not beholden to by not getting that check. Being an independent field commander, which means truly being independent, I have far more freedom to do what I want to do and say what I want to say. Uh, without Going into the lengthy discussions that my brigadier and I have had about the contracts that I have that are open and jobs that he pay for themselves and of at this time. In cases, a struggle to get through the process without that regular check to do my job. I'm fully encouraged and understand that I will be better off in the long run by being independent. Excellent. Gotcha. Yeah. So uh, let's go back and forth and ask questions, honey. So, because uh, I've got a lot, and I know you do too. And Randy's, thank you for your patience and bearing with us. So, um, yeah. Oh, you know, I love questions. You know me, so. Oh, I know. Go for it. <laughs> so, um, well, you mentioned, and I, I want to go, that you mentioned the rogue elements, but now I'm stuck here on the, what kind of the questions. So you could get any questions answered that you asked. What kind of questions did you ask that you? didn't know already that you wanted to get answers to have all the answers. Well, I certainly had a lot of questions about my own experiences that I needed clarification on. Um, I certainly had the desire to get access to my records because getting access to my records is a way in which I will get access to uh, back pay that is owed to me and back benefits that are owed to me. And at some point there will be a settlement. And I was encouraged uh, how to file the paperwork to get that process started, which I was told at the time by both the uh, by, by my, excuse me by my brigadier and by the military liaison of a local elected official's office who will remain nameless for their uh, own sake of identity protection in this case, and that it would be a 10 to 15 year process probably to reach that settlement of which we are in about year eight. So I'm perfectly content to continue that process and, and, and wait it out as it were. Um, that was, that was very important to me. My flight certification is in there. Uh, a number of other things that are in there that are important to me, which 
I, I don't care if the general public knows the things that are in there or even if they ask me or force me to sign secrecy agreements in order to get access to those records that I not disclose what's in those records publicly. I'm fine with that. It's far more important to me to get the information that I want out of those files and to get the settlement. And I, I don't need to you know, share that information with the general public when that happens. So I'm perfectly content to do it that way. Uh, I was also very curious about a lot of the things that were going on uh, behind the scenes, in the shadows, what the plan or the overall agenda was of a number of other different organizations. And being given access to that information is filled in a lot of gaps for me and helps me sleep better at night. All right. And I guess we want to know what's going on behind the scenes. But I'll let Sash ask you a question. Back to you, Sash. Well, I, I just, you know, I, could you describe for our listeners what the situation in near space or in the inner solar system uh, is between our forces, Solar Warden, the forces of Kruger, the Nazis that were there before? You know, who are the players? What's going on? Well, you certainly mentioned some of the players there. There are even more players than that. I, it's it's difficult for me to make an entire list because there are so many people involved, but I would suggest that just about every military intelligence organization in the, what is traditionally known as the G8 countries, even though Russia has stepped out of the G8, that does not mean they're outside the covert military space program, that they're no longer participating. Uh, it was more of a political bluster to out of G8, but what are traditionally known as the G8 countries, think about just every military intelligence organization in those countries, they all know something, they all have some information, and in many cases they have their own programs which are about developing these technologies, the propulsion systems, spacecraft, uh, genetic augmentations, and a whole list of other technological things that come with being you know, a covert military space program participant. Uh, add into that most of the known executive and legislative bodies of also some of these countries, the United Nations, uh, as well as the individual programs within the covert military space program, which does include uh, the Neuschwabenlanders, who are the former Nazi Germans who moved to Antarctica to a, a place called Neuschwabenland and uh, participated and built their own section of the fleet, which is also sometimes referred to as the Nachwaffen or the night fleet or the dark fleet. Uh, and there is continued contention between some of these groups. And I won't say that, you know, it's uh, a lot of open hostilities or open aggression, but there is contention over different issues. And just like having democracy at any table, you have parties who agree and disagree and sometimes those agreements are very intense and sometimes those disagreements are very intense and so it's not so simple as to say that there's like 12 people like on the mj12 committee who's in charge of all of this that's just not the way it works you have participants from all of the bodies that i mentioned plus some others which i have not mentioned who are participating and at some point desire and or demand a voice at the big table. So it's a complex arrangement. There, there's no simplicity to it where 
one group of people or one body gets to make all the demands and tell everybody what else to do. Now, there may have been some times in the past when one party or another may have had a larger domination over the rest of the group, but I would suggest currently that is not the case, that currently we have a vigorous and sloppy democracy, which, you know, let's just be honest, sometimes democracy is sloppy because you have to have a lot of people who have a lot of opinions, who have to hammer out agreements and deals and treaties and contracts and what the rule of law is in order to go down the road. That's just the way democracy works. And I wouldn't have it any other way. I would rather have a uneasy, sloppy democracy than I would rather have a clean and clear fascist state as far as the system is concerned. So at this point, I am encouraged that it's a messy democracy and not one group of people demanding or telling everyone else what they have to do. Are there other systems of governance besides the ones that we know? I mean, we're dealing with uh, extraterrestrials that come from all parts of the you know universe, I guess, actually. And I'm sure they don't all use like um, dictatorships and democracies and fascist governments. What, what do they do? Well, interestingly enough, there's about as wide and varied a number of social political system existing within the extraterrestrial systems as you could imagine. So there are what I would call benevolent monarchies. I would call also sort of not so benevolent monarchies. There are systems which are uh, very capitalistic, uh, based on monetary systems like our own system. There are corporate systems. Hi, I'm having trouble hearing. Are, are you having trouble oh, communistic, hearing? Meaning that you. Okay, go ahead. I can hear you now. Is that any better? Yeah, I can hear you now. Yes, sorry. I, so you had um, faded out for a moment there for me. No worries. I, I, my phone has fallen down a few times and has a lot of cracks on it. And I think sometimes it doesn't sound so great. So that could just okay. be. Okay. <laughs> we'll bear with it. So there's all kinds of different governance systems throughout the galaxies. And, and yet there's yes. somehow that people come into agreements in order to have um, what we learned on the panel was uh, most of, most people like to trade. They like to. Um, yes. 95%. Yes, 95% uh, or approximately 95% of the species that we have encountered and 95% of the activity that we are aware of uh, intergalactically and universally is about trade, is about different world species and consortiums who have surpluses of things or make things really well and want to trade them with other groups who have other things that they want or need. So what, what are the 5% that's left over? What are they doing? Well, that 5%, let's say, are just those who don't like to play by the rules. And so you have uh, a few scavenger species which are have no interest in uh, showing up on our doorstep and ruling the planet or taking over. However, they may certainly have an interest in showing up and stealing some things or taking some things that we're not keep, keeping a good eye on. 
because they're scavengers and they have evolved mm-hmm. from scavenger uh, biological organisms and have evolved an ethics and morality around taking what they need and scavenging what they need and in some cases doing so while not respecting the rule of law and the rules of fair play as the other 95% tend uh, to be more accepting of. And you do have a, a tinier percentage of those who are simply dominating assholes, let's just call them what they are, and have either desire to take the resources of entire planets and or subjugate them for long-term slavery purposes because they're lazy and they don't like to do their own work and do their own laundry. (laughs) And I had heard about them before. Uh, Another um, secret space program person said that they call them, they kind of look like wolves or something. Uh, but that's the, the, that's not exactly, but they're like, um, uh, they might be the what's behind the original Klingons, remember in Star Trek 1, where they were just uh, assholes that would just come and take what they need, and then it got domesticated over time. But, um, and, they, and they, they're known to be like planet destroyers, they take everything to, in excess, to the, and they sometimes leave behind you know, charred cinders and just take all the resources, all the minerals, etc. Is that is that accurate? That report like there that. are a, it, it is accurate to suggest that there are a few species who like to play that way yes which okay. is the reason uh why we need to have a strong and stable military space fleet i'll just be honest about that there there if we didn't protect ourselves from that five percent uh it would make trade with the other 95 percent impossible so in order to engage in healthy trade we have to have a healthy defense that's just a, the way it is so all these stories that they're going to come down and eat us and uh, take us off for slaves, that's false? There's, there's some people I wouldn't that say they get taken and, they, and they're in the military and they didn't ask to be there. Well, I wouldn't say that that's false. I would say that because we're still in this gray area of law and lawlessness, that you have programs within the space program as well as programs outside of the uh, space program that involve extraterrestrials in which people sometimes are taken against their will and are inducted into service against their will or taken as slaves to go somewhere else or in some cases used as a food source. Those things do happen. This is one of the main reasons, well, I'm sorry, those are some of the main reasons why we think secrecy has to be done away with and we have to bring this all into the public light because uh, we don't think that's a healthy way to treat our own people or to allow that to happen to our own people no matter what station in life they have. And we think that it sets uh, an overall bad tone. We fully understand as a psionic command that We are connected through our minds and through our consciousness and through our spirit beings in a very, very real way. And I I don't want to get all airy-fairy here for a minute. I want to make it very clear that this is an an understanding of science, an understanding of mathematics and the laws of physics, that this relationship exists, that this part of the human consciousness and the human spirit exists and that the soul exists and that we are connected. This is not just some, uh, again, airy-fairy notion. This is based on some very hard science that you know, we've been able to glean over the decades as well as what we have been able to exchange information with other extraterrestrial species. And we fully understand that you send ripples through your species with whatever you do or whatever you allow to be done to your weakest members. And so we think that it is a poison to the consciousness of humanity to treat people this way, to have members of our own society treated this way, and that if we truly wish to evolve at some point, this behavior has to be done away with. So who's doing it? 
Who's who's abducting? Who's uh, chopping us up for food? Who's exporting us as slaves, sex slaves, work slaves? What faction well, is doing I, that? Well, I would I would suggest that it is smaller rogue programs. That it's not necessarily any of the larger factions. Some of the larger factions have what we would just call simple personnel needs. And that sometimes the smaller programs who are obligated contractually to supply personnel to the larger programs sometimes don't obey the rules and laws of how they're supposed to behave in order to acquire those personnel. And sometimes superiors of the larger programs look the other way because they have personnel shortfalls that simply need to be filled. Again, this is another reason why we think secrecy has to be done away with. We need open enlistment. We need the ability for people to apply for jobs from the civilian world. We need to make it very, very clear that if there are chairs and jobs to fill and boots to fill, that there are people who are very willing to fill them if you paid them uh, a decent wage or salary to do so. And the number of people who are eager to join and to participate in these programs is vast. And the personnel shortfalls would not exist if we had uh, open enlistment, open enrollment, and the ability for people to apply for jobs within the programs. Well, that would certainly solve our immigration problems. (laughs) You know, people would uh, say, okay, I'm not limited to the earth. I'm going to go apply to go work on, you know, some other planet. I would think. Well, yeah, absolutely. Well, well, and we also think that traditionally on planet earth, the way in which uh, nation states dealt with overpopulation problems was to settle colonies, was to send people overseas and to start new lives in new places. And we think that there are plenty of people, given the opportunity, uh, would do just that in some of the places where we have colonies, which are not just within our solar system, which we do have colonies on Mars and elsewhere, but we have colonies outside of our star system across the galaxy. And that if we allowed people to participate in those colony programs that plenty of people would decide to go somewhere else uh, for the chance of, you know, carving out a new life and a new frontier. Human beings are wired for that. We've been doing it for millennia, if not longer, and given the opportunity to escape the mundanity and the uh, box of their lives, I think there are plenty of people who, based on the information, the studies we've done, who would be happy to do that. So again, if we allowed the information to flow more freely and allowed people to do that, we would have fewer of the problems with uh, people being driven out of their countries due to war and economic problems or crime or gang activity and being forced across borders to put stresses on other countries whose economic and social structures are healthier. Right. In fact, there was a whole book, of, uh, there's a series of books, but Robert Heinlein wrote Time Enough for Love in 1973, and he talked about the great diaspora and how the earth was, um, you know, not such a happy place at the beginning war. And so people were just enlisting and signing up to go in these colonies all over. And eventually, I think, settled down back on earth because, you know, well, first of all, the the uh, the greatest talent, the smartest minds tend to want to go to space. You know, let, let me let's go out there, and we won't be so limited. So, there was a um, uh, the great minds were leaving, but once you relieve that pressure, it seemed to uh, settle things down on all the planets. And so, I'm hoping something that like that will be enacted or allowed. So, if somebody wanted to sign up, are there places that <laughs> they could maybe find uh, through other means? 
Well, not directly. We know that there are a number of corporations who send contractors. And so depending on which corporation you might end up working for and which contracting office you might end up working for, you could very well get sent into into space. But since those are not open programs and since they tend to be very selective about those programs, I couldn't even begin to tell someone what corporation or company they should go apply for and what program they should try and get into in order to to get sent off of that right but they do exist but they do exist as well as there are military programs from the regular military which recruit personnel up the ladder so there are special forces programs and officer programs which also recruit and uh borrow and or glean people to go up the ladder into the covert military space program. Michael Relf, uh, who made it very clear as a naval officer, as a regular naval officer, that someone came along and asked him whether he wanted to move up the ladder and he was happy to volunteer. Mm-hmm. Right. And I know a couple people that worked their ways through the ranks. And, you know, if you really want to do this, anybody out there listening, you know, educate yourself. Maybe you get your engineering degree or something like that. Don't they tend to want to have people that are intelligent and they like the notion of having you know the best and the brightest uh we like to think that if the most important defense is the defense of our planet and the space around it and the colonization of other worlds and the protection of those worlds then yeah it tends to be some of the smarter more capable people who get moved up that ladder but it's no guarantee just because you're smart and capable that you'll get moved up their ladder some they tend to and again, this is because of the secrecy, tend to lean towards people who have really, really high abilities at keeping secrets. And we've noticed through certain studies that this isn't necessarily a positive thing, that sometimes people who keep the best secrets aren't the best qualified people. And sometimes people who don't keep secrets so well are far more qualified. So Mm -hmm. we think that by getting rid of secrecy, we would actually open up the pools of more qualified personnel who wouldn't have to keep their mouths shut so bad uh, and could talk a little bit about what they do instead of absolutely never breathing a word of it for fear of having themselves or their family wiped off the face of the earth or sent to the mines on Mars. <laughs> right. Well, I worked at, on Johnson Atoll, and, and looking back at my time there, I realized that I was connected with a, a series of um, secret military... Well, they were connected with whatever was going underground. So underneath... Johnson Atoll was a, a base, and I got to go there, and then there was uh, Kwajalein or, or Marshall Islands, and, and of course, now we know about Antarctica, and I could have done the rotation. But I, I got a taste of what you're talking about, and from my, and, and it was really delightful. The people that did the rotation, they, they enjoyed their lives, and they weren't limited to just being on one base their entire life. They were able to go around and, you know, use their skills in different locations and see the world and probably probably some of those people I was talking to were going off planet too. Now that they look back on it, but they didn't talk to me because I was just uh, one of the regular, you know, civilians that was working on that base. So uh, to what degree does that go on? Are there people that rotate in and out that, you know, come and sit down and, you know, <laughs> work with other people in regular jobs? Absolutely. When I was in the MDF stationed on Mars, we had we ate regular cafeteria food and the cafeteria workers, the kitchen workers were contractors. They were not military personnel and they rotated in and out about every four or five weeks. 
And so those people were getting rotated from station to station, place to place, potentially sent back to Earth and then back out into space again and back and forth, depending on whatever the schedule is that they have set up for those people. And they were perfectly content and happy to to be there. None of them seemed like they were uh, slave labor or that they were unhappy with their lives or that they were being mistreated. Most of them seemed like they were perfectly happy and, and joyous to be doing the job that they were doing and where they were. Well, I know we got what was called hazardous pay because we were in a remote right. location. And so um, some of the people I work with, they could work five years and invest it properly and come out many millionaires. So that was one of oh, the incentives. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. So I, I was part of that same program. Uh, Sash, your turn for a question. I'm monopolizing Randy. Of course I do that. Go ahead, Sash. Yeah, well, one of the things I'm really interested in is uh, relationships with the people of Venus. Uh, Valiant and Thor and others have done a number of times, helped us out and offered us uh, non-military technology and and so forth. I just wonder what uh, what you know about our relationship with the people of Venus. Well, that would be the Hathor. Uh, those uh, who know their history know that the Hathor and the Temple of Hathor, uh, as given the relief carvings on the walls and statuary, have a very round face, have sort of amphibian ears. They've evolved from an amphibious species. They tend to have a, a tense mastery over sound. So a lot of their healing techniques are using sound and a lot of their technology uh, is using sounds or sonic waves. They're an amazing group of people, an absolutely fantastically enlightened species that have a fabulous civilization on Venus, in, not in the dimensional phase that we live in. It is accurate to say that the gases on Venus in third density, as we understand it, is very unhealthy. And if you were to land there in a spaceship without being able to move through that uh, phase frequency, you would not be able to experience their civilization. But they have evolved themselves to the place of being able to live in this frequency that's just outside of third density and just inside fourth density in order to uh, have a thriving planet and civilization within that phase frequency. So how many species do wow, that? Or, or is that something common that uh, the, the, not all the species are in third dimensional frequency? Oh, yeah. It turns out one of the reasons why we don't receive a lot of radio frequencies or detect a lot of civilizations is because we sort of fail to contemplate the notion that it just might be a thing as you evolve and develop your civilization and your species to not want to be detected that hiding from other species, hiding from scavenger species and violent domination species just might be a technology that you want to, might want to master for your entire planet. And so in many cases, these species have either evolved or used technological means to completely cloak and mask their worlds from that sort of detection, or in some cases to exist outside of a normal phase frequency so that they simply can't be harmed or attacked by species who are existing in a lower frequency and can't technologically or consciously or spiritually move themselves to a higher frequency. So how does that tie in with uh, humanity's dead? Are we just in a different phase when we die? What do you know about that? Well, I, well, I can tell you what, what I know is that we, 
having been dead a few times, uh, that when we disconnect from our body enough to no longer be present in the density that you and I are talking in right now, we move into a realm of higher consciousness and a slightly higher density. Again, a what my understanding is a density that just bridges this upper third density, lower fourth density frequency uh, in which reality is much more flexible. Uh, it's easier to create things uh, out of thin air or to manifest things right out of thin air. And it's easier to exist in a state of consciousness that is outside of linear time. And there's a, a lot of activity there. There's certainly a lot of activity. My experiences of it was to uh, sort of move beyond this density into that other density where I would have conversations with guides who would ask me about how things had gone and whether it was, you know, my, whether I was done or whether I was going back, I was always vehement that I was going back and then I always came back. But I suppose if at some point I decided, nope, enough, I've had enough of this crap, then my opportunity to move on to another lifetime into another incarnation, either in this world or another world will be an option. So was your, um, and I've had the same experience. I've been dead eight times, but, uh, I, chose to come back every time it's like what was i thinking no <laughs> i really enjoyed well here, that's but- a funny thing about that right you, you say that and then you come back and you're like oh my god what was i thinking but it's because when you're in that state uh you're not feeling the pressure and the density and the pain and suffering of this world and so you're like no i'm ready to go back and then as soon as you come back you're like <laughs> oh crap here i am again so it is an interesting uh it, it's it's almost like uh, waking up next to somebody drunk and going, "Wait, what was I doing last night?" But yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it is definitely one of the one of the factors that plays in is when you're in that when you're in that mode, it's very easy to say, "Oh yeah, I'm ready to come back." And then as soon as you get back, you go, "Oh, geez, what was I thinking? I should have stayed there." But it is understanding that we have a higher purpose or a higher function or a greater mission in life. Uh, that goes beyond our own suffering, our own ability to endure or withstand pain and agony, and that those things really don't matter when it comes to completing our mission or our duty in, in this world. So we take, we take the good with the bad with that. So what was the circumstance of your death, and was it more than one time? And <laughs> Yeah, dozens <laughs> of times. Was it in the line of service or... Oh yeah. Pretty much every time in the line of service, um, where we typically, depending on how much damage is done to the human body depends on just how willing to let go your spirit being is, you know, willing to let go. So enough damage is done to your body and your spirit being goes, I'm out of here. And it leaves your body. And then if your body loses enough electrical activity in your brain, then you actually die uh, in the sense that your silver cord disconnects and there's no anchor to your body anymore and you're, you, you're, you're done. You're not likely to come back at all. But as long as there is some electro- electrical activity in the brain, that silver cord can be maintained and you have the option of either coming back voluntarily or as the technology can sometimes do, be yanked back, uh, like mm-hmm. reeled in like a fish on the end of a fishing line and pulled back into your body, whether you want it to be or not. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, that th- those times which I experienced death were in combat where enough damage was done to my body that I decided 
oh, this is it. I'm out. And then, you know, choose to leave my body and w- until they repaired it and then come back. Well, aren't you kind of kind of valuable to them? They don't really want to have you die because they've invested a lot in you. That's why they had the medical technology to continue to rebuild and restore us because we're they spent a lot of money to get us where we were. And it was the last thing they wanted to do to just, you know, sacrifice us on the battlefield without being able to use us again and again and again and again. So, yeah, they certainly consider uh, the value of most of those personnel, especially as you get more experience. Veteran personnel are incredibly valuable. And as long as they still have some sanity because sometimes a the lengthy process and lengthy combat operations start to break apart the mind and the body in such a way as to cause people to sort of lose their sanity so there is a point where even veteran soldiers become broken to the point that they'd say oh okay we're done with this one but as long as you know there's self-repair which is both internal and external then you're continue to have value if you can continue in service somehow. So my superiors have suggested that they consider me very valuable and they would like to keep me around in service for as long as possible. Wow. And do they have societies where they value their citizens as much as our service values, their super soldiers? That they, I mean, is this available for average people that they value them so much that you know, they want to keep their Teslas and Einsteins alive. Oh, or certainly. Even there's, the average person. Oh, no, there, there's some worlds that absolutely understand that, you know, there are some genius post hole diggers and toilet installers who simply haven't had the opportunity of education and um, the ability to, to prove themselves as being, you know, smarter and greater than their station in life. And that there are worlds who would like to maximize the use of all of those people to their maximum potential. We still strangely, to me anyway, uh, still live in this world where we have a social uh, genetic caste system where depending on whose vagina you came out of sort of decides on your value. And I, and I think that there are many worlds who uh, find that very strange that you know people who have been of lineages of, of wealth and position seem to have a greater value uh, than those who do not when there are civilizations who fully understand that that's just not how it works, that you have people of of intrinsic genius and value at all stations of existence, and they need to be given the opportunities to understand who really are the Einsteins and the Teslas throughout society so that they can all be uh, have their best and brightest knowledge and ability applied to the greater good. Uh, and we still have this notion that some people have a higher value than others and that's for some reason they want to keep the rest of people down because they're concerned about how those people might change or shake up the system. There are plenty of other worlds who still have, you know, caste systems or stratified systems, but most of those systems still have the ability to recognize extraordinary genius at any level and want to immediately take those people and put them to use, you know, for something better. But the more evolved worlds, I think, just have, you know, given away any of those notions of caste or structure or stratification and simply consider that everyone is as equal as their ability. And so, you know, someone demonstrates their ability through education, through chain training, through job performance, then that person will be elevated based on their skill and experience level and their ability to accomplish a task. 
not because of some stratification reason, or is the case of humans on planet Earth so often are um, social cliques, as it were. Anyone who's been at a mm-hmm. corporate job knows that if you got the right group of friends, you will uh, go up the ladder, and if you don't have the right group of friends, you won't go up the ladder. So uh, I think that's a little ridiculous, and there are a number of other species who would agree with me on that, that if we want to make use of our best and our brightest and make use of them in a way that is to the greatest acceleration and growth of our civilization and our planet and people, we really need to kind of do away with that. It's very primitive. Yes. And that's where I come from. I don't know what that planet is, but I know I'm from that planet because I look at this system and I go, what? And I think a little bit of that is starting to emerge because you see things like YouTubes and they go, here's this kid born in poverty and it's a, it's a genius and it doesn't matter what race or color it was. Or, and a lot of the, like, they have the America's Got Talent and the voice and stuff. And so they're starting to accelerate people who might, you know, sing exceptionally or, or dance exceptionally or something. But we've got to start valuing people on a different level than what we do now because, you know, a lot of talent is going to waste. A lot of uh, genius is going to waste. And if we could utilize the genius of all of our people, we'd certainly move from a level zero civilization to a higher level. And that's what I think uh, needs to be kind of expressed here in this world. It's like we're missing out on some really opportunities. But see, I think that's part of the problem, though, is there's a part that wants to keep us down. So maybe we can go into that a little bit. Uh, we're getting, we're almost at the end of the first hour, but are, are there these factions on Earth, I'm not just talking about other planets, but just want to keep us down and never evolve and never be a part of the federation what's going on well there there, well there are certainly groups of people on this planet and other species who are benefiting uh in a way of either financial gain material gain or power that they don't want to see upset and uh or the boat rocked as it were so those people certainly are fighting very hard to continue to see the status quo not change but we are seeing behind the scenes that as the as the edge of civilization gets closer and closer to the brink of disaster, and some of these very wealthy and powerful people are starting to realize that they're not going to make as much money or be as wealthy or powerful if they get rid of a few billion people, that the only way that they're going to continue to be wealthy and powerful is if civilization itself and the fabric of civilization itself continues. So we are starting to convince them and they are starting to see that if they want their wealth and power to continue, they're going to have to change the way they think about that oppression because that oppression is coming to the point where it is going to start affecting their wealth and power. And that whole wealth and power system seems kind of archaic as well. I mean, isn't there a point where it's kind of... Uh, you know, we, we, we call hoarders mentally ill, right? So somebody's hoarding money at the expense of other people who starve, you know, literally don't have enough to, to eat. That's that's very low-level civilization. So why would we support a system where uh, we want to support this 1% that is extremely wealthy at the expense of the rest of society? Or is that something well, that's going to go away? Well, I would suggest that at the moment, that stranglehold is not something that we're going to loosen up with a crowbar or a brick or any kind of violent revolution. At some point, we have to do it through cooperation. So we think that it makes more sense to use the scaffolding that's there, to use the structure that's there 
to create change and move us from step A to step Q, as it were. And so we know that it's important to, uh, that if you, if you want to fight those people and oppose them, they are willing to absolutely let, you know, as much of the world burn as possible in that mm-hmm. effort. They're, they're, they're very stubborn. So we think psychologically it makes sense to go around that stubbornness and say, all right, what can we do to make you guys understand and that you'll get more money and be more wealthy and more powerful of the kinds of things that you want or value if you do it our way and we get to change the world and make it a better place and give everybody else a bit more of a fair shake. We, we think at this point, if it means, if that's the way we have to do it to get down the road, as opposed to uh, pushing those people to the point of, you know, doing some sort of spoil sport option and, and letting most of the world burn or be destroyed in, in an effort to absolutely not lose their power, or their wealth. Well then fine. Uh, let them have it because it's, it's still only going to be a temporary thing. And when I say temporary, it's just a matter of decades or centuries. Once we're able to move this down the line to a more evolved civilization before those things will simply matter less. And, the people who are wealthy and powerful now, we would encourage them to say, hey, go do it this way and you'll be wealthy and powerful till the end of your days. And by the time things switch around to more in a, a more egalitarian system, you'll either be somewhere else or not even be around here and it won't matter. So we, we think it's perfectly acceptable to see it as a stepping stone of getting from where we are to where we need to be. And instead of having this overly idealistic way of which we think that that has to happen, we think that it's much smarter to do it in the way that it's just going to be the path follows the path of least resistance. So following the path of least resistance gets the most people to cooperate, get cost the fewest people, their lives and their livelihood Mm -hmm. in the process and gets us there the quickest. So we think uh, classically, compromise is a better way to do this than through conflict. So who are these people? Are they the Anunnaki, the Illuminati, the Archons, or Reptilians? Are they human? Who are these people that are the wealthy that, you know, we're the human facade? Are they really uh, human or what are they? Yes. that That's a yes to all of those. And I'd say that that list goes even farther uh, if you want to include everybody that's on that list. So it's, it's also a changing list. It's also a changing list. So, uh, for many years, people certainly spoke about the, about draconian control on this planet and, uh, considered the alpha draconians to be this very, very, uh, ruling everything in the elites behind the scenes sort of species, and there certainly was a time when that was true. That is not true now. Uh, the influence of the draconians has been whittled down to uh, a very tiny number through most of the society that we live in and through most of the covert military space program. They still maintain some relationships with certain members, and but those relationships in themselves have changed because they simply have been uh, whittled down to a way in a place where they just don't have the power that they used to. And in some cases they're, you know, fighting for survival and their lives and, and what little that they have left. But in the vacuum of those people not having power anymore, other people have moved up the chain of having more power. Uh, 
And that's just an evolving process. We, we, we continue, we, we would say that that's going to continue to be an evolving process until we're all, or most of us are evolved enough and smart enough to not have all of these other people meddling in our affairs. Wow. I'd want to know more about that, but we're coming up at the top of the hour. We're going to be taking a five minute break. Um, yeah, I certainly would like to know. Do you know who these people are? And we're they're almost them. music. Okay, so just pause that. We'll be back in five minutes. <laughs> Thank you for listening. See you in five. will give you those truths when you're mad as hell and not going to take it anymore from that memorable scene in network you'll know just what to do we will draw you in and become your news addiction at event horizons join us monday through friday from 10 a.m to noon eastern time at freedomslips.com at revolution radio our world team members are Dennis Fetcho, John Ilias, David Dunger, Hila Cass, MD, Melanie Richton, Jim Mars, Paula Harris, John Trallo, Maria Payan, Christopher Husser, DODDS, Jonathan Orchard, and me, your anchor, Dr. Robin Falco. If uh, you decide not to volunteer, it will not be held against you in any way. Sounds dangerous. It is. Very dangerous. Count me in. That's right here at Revolution Radio, freedomslips.com, where information never sleeps. Is your data safe? Do you have the necessary information to assist you in confidently living through just about any survival situation? Is survival and gardening, off-grid living, medical knowledge, or even natural or man-made EMPs on your list of personal concerns? Do you have your documents and your personal information in a safe place in your hands where you know where it is? Well, check out our preloaded EMP-proof thumb drive. Over 3 gigs of survival documents and how-tos, plus the USDA offline food preservation website, and much, much more, including a surprise bonus we just can't tell you about here. With plenty of room left over to store your most important documents. Imagine if a megavirus or computer failure took out your bank, or all the banks for that matter. Are your banking records safe in your hands so when they get things fixed and repaired, you can say, hey, look, this is what I had. You have it. I want it back. Is your personal data safe? 
family records, addresses, phone numbers, well, squeeze on over to freedomslips.com. Yes, that's www.freedomslips.com. Click the banner on the homepage for the EMP proof bullet drive to get the full scoop of everything that we offer. So, folks, keep your data safe for your peace of mind. Revolution Radio, freedomslips.com. You don't need to expect us. We're already here. Syrian diplomat reported today that their population is evolving rapidly and advancing into a fifth dimensional consciousness. They are seeking peace with all cosmic cultures, which may mean that the Earth will be asked to join the prestigious Galactic Federation of Light Alliances. Please join Debbie West and Michael Hathaway on Lost Knowledge. Saturdays, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time in Studio A for the latest breaking news on the Star Visitor's peaceful contact and the ongoing project of cleansing the Earth. This is the people's war. It is our war. We are the fighters. Fight it then. Fight it with all that is in us. And may God defend the right. Warning! Warning! We've got to stop us! They're going to kill us all! See how the trouble you've started? Be they the government, be they industry, be they organized labor, be they anyone, or human beings! Time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part, you can't even passively take part. But to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop, and you've got to win the day to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. Revolution Radio of FreedomSlips.com, the number one listener-supported talk radio station, throwing ourselves upon the gears of the machine. Revolution Radio, where information never sleeps. You called down the thunder, well now you've got it. Right, you tell them I'm coming, and hell's coming with me, you hear? Hell's coming with me! Revolution Radio!
The opinions expressed on this radio station, its programs, and its website by the hosts, guests, and call-in listeners or chatters are solely the opinions of the original source who expressed them. They do not necessarily represent the opinions of Revolution Radio and FreedomSlips.com, its staff, or affiliates. You're listening to Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com, 100% listener-supported radio, and now we return you to your host. Aloha and welcome back to the Sacred Matrix on Revolution Radio at revolution.radio. And I'm Jenna Kara Lesson with Dr. Sasha Alex Lesson and Thomas Becker, our producer, and Randy Kramer, our very special guest. We're having a great time. But before we get back to our show, I'd like to remind everybody. Oh, am I still on? Yeah. Can you hear me, guys? Oh, oh yeah. You're, you're oh, on. yeah. We can hear you. Okay. Okay, sorry, my app disappeared. Anyway, before we get back to the show, I'd like to remind everybody to please go over to the donation button on revolution.radio and make your donation this week because we really could use the money. And a mad painter is going to tell us where we are in our fundraising for this month. Uh, we have we have 2203 and we need 2850 so we're still low and we got 2 days to come up with another $100 in order to cover the domain name of revolution.radio so please donate okay please donate so sasha i've been taking over and asking randy all the questions i want to give you a fair chance but in case we don't, we'll have to have you back, Randy, because there's like 9 million questions we have for you. <laughs> but, uh, Dr. Lesson, what would Anytime. you like to say? Thank you, Randy. Yes, uh, I, I was interested in the, the time that you talked, uh, before we uh, talked, when you had mentioned first there was a time when there would be lights or some kind of uh, energy playing on your uh, place where your uh, limb, arm had been um, severed, and then you later on realized that it was the strength of your own mind that could generate a limb. And I know that Janet has talked about when her neck was broken, she was able to fix it internally. And that's a lot of the, um, and I just wonder for both of you, if, how much of these abilities that you realize you had in the other dimension, you still have in this particular life now. Can you make yourself healthy? Can you generate broken limbs? Where, where are both of you at with this now? Well, it's a little bit of what I would like to describe sometimes as swimming through solid rock, meaning it is a difficult process, but doable. And it has something to do with the density of the reality that we live in that is uh, not so simple uh to just create what we want to create that we have to really 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 apply our thoughts and our consciousness to create the things that we need but i would also encourage people to understand that these skills are like a muscle the more you exercise them and the more you discipline them the stronger they get and my experience has been that when i have spent large amounts of time focusing on these things, I get better at them and they get easier. And when I spend weeks or months uh, distracted and not focusing on them, then those muscles get weak again. And I have to start all over as it were to strengthen them back up again. So it's something that I encourage anyone who has a regular practice to keep at every day because it's that discipline of every day that is going to get you to the, the point of where these abilities are 
um, easier to do and more fluid to perform. Yeah, I'll, wow. I'll address that as well. When when I had um, I had been <laughs> killed basically, and I was out of my body. Uh, I've been you know raped and strangled, and I was a very young child. I was four years old. When I was out of my body, I was with my guides, and they um, you know basically instructed me how to fix it. But it wasn't like they were instructing me. It's like they reminded me I knew how to fix my broken neck, and so I I fixed my broken neck, and then I reanimated my body, and I came back in, and then I freaked out my mother and the people that witnessed it, and so they thought uh, you know. My mother thought for a while she'd given birth to the demon seed because I literally revived myself oh, yeah. from the dead. And then, and then when I was seven, she got angry again and she strangled me. And, and I remembered how to do it. So once again, I came back. So my poor mother was totally freaked out by me. But at that point, I realized that she was kind of, I, I didn't know the, the what I know now about, you know, the handlers and the mind control and all that stuff. But I knew she couldn't uh, control herself. So... Right. I became like the little mother to her. And then when I was um, hit by a Manchurian candidate and I had a, uh, the top rib of my, and it affected my neck and I was in excruciating pain, um, I did the same technique. And so I didn't know I could do it as an adult, but I, it's like I, either that or I was just going to be miserable the rest of my life. So I had to go in. So I envisioned like a little mini me going in and, you know, going to your bloodstream. Remember that, uh, that showed the 60s where you went into the bloodstream and a little ship went in. Yeah, so I visioned my little yeah. mini me going in and accessing the point where the wound was and, you know, doing what I needed to do to fix it. So I think we all have that ability. And, you know, the powers to be don't want us to know that we can do that because, you know, we'll be raising the dead and never dying. So they want us to believe in death and aging and all that stuff. And, and we've all kind of bought into it. And that's why we die and we age. But I think actually we are extremely long-lived eternal if not you know extreme longevity if not physically immortal beings but we bought into this uh, illusion that we only get to live 50 100 years or whatever and then we're dead so that's my theory well there's a certain amount of truth that uh, how we wire our brains is how we create the reality that we live in. And so our brains have been wired in such a way to limit our, our ages and limit our ability to heal and restore ourselves and limit our ability to manifest and affect matter and energy in our reality. But if we did truly understand our abilities and rewired our brains to the effect, we would have near godlike abilities. That is true. Right. And I think that's why well, you, they fear yeah. us. <laughs> Go ahead, honey. Well, uh, Randy and uh, Janet, I wonder if you remember when we were in Yelm in that uh, talk, the, the, there was an apostate uh, Catholic priest who said, you know, the way he had got it was that the message of Jesus in bringing the, the little uh, clay pigeons to life and the boy that he had uh, killed back to life, it was, was, re was really that mind could master the material and that, that that's the transformation that we're not bound to the material he felt like that was the essence of of jesus's message just with, with you the kind of thing that you two are talking of the power of the mind to uh, affect the material 
Oh, yes. Yeshua ben Joseph, uh, certainly his enlightenment was to understand his own divine ability to manipulate matter and energy to the point of trying to tell us all uh, that you are gods and trying to tell us that the power was within us and not outside of us for certain. And I think that's what, uh, are you familiar with A.R. Borden? He had the um, Linkage Institute and he was teaching people how to basically manifest from the non-material and bring it down into physicality and manifest it into 3D reality. And that's what they were doing at Montauk. Apparently they were first manifesting mice and rabbits and then eventually they manifested the monster and they used the mind and learned how to, I guess, pull it down and coalesce into form. Is that your, have you seen that? Is that your understanding, Randy? Um, I've seen, I've certainly seen different things like that. Uh, I, here in Yelm, we do have the RSC, which is Ramtha School of Enlightenment. And there are students who have been able to, uh, regrow, uh, teeth, uh, regrow. A, there's a woman who regrew a finger that had been severed. Another woman who regrew a uterus after a hysterectomy. And at least one student that I'm aware of who is, uh, developing pretty good telekinetic abilities right now. Hmm, interesting, interesting. Um, well, I want to go back to the bigger picture panel that we shared at the end of the Stargate of the Cosmos Expo. And you were talking about the facility. Was it outside of Jupiter? In the, the intergalactic in the space station that orbits Jupiter, Tell correct. Us. The intergalactic space station, sure. The intergalactic space station orbits Jupiter. It's, uh, I don't know exactly how many hundreds of miles it is away from the surface, but Jupiter is very large and to, to not be pulled into the gravity well, uh, to maintain a stable orbit is to be at least some hundreds or maybe even thousands of miles away from the surface. But Jupiter is very large. So, uh, being in that orbit, you still get to see, the planet itself and a pretty amazing close-upness and it's just startling i mean jupiter is an absolutely gorgeous planet to be staring at for any length of time but the intergalactic space station is run by a consortium of uh commerce uh based extraterrestrials who essentially believe that having facilitating the ability for everyone to get together and talk about commerce and treaty negotiation and is probably the most important and valuable thing that they can do is service to the galaxy and the universe itself. So the intergalactic space station is just that it is a large station with the main room is, a, I want to say nearly a mile wide. It's a round room with windows that are floor to ceiling about 80 feet high. And the, the room itself has the ability to project hard light holograms. So think holodeck. That's all a, a holodeck projection is, is a hard light hologram. That's why you can touch it or sit down on it or, or interact with it as opposed to a soft light hologram, which looks like something's there. But if you touched it with your hand, your hand would go right through it. So hard light holograms are the ability to create solid objects out of nothing, as it were, out of light. And so the ability to create a variety of what are referred to as conversational environments for different species to communicate. Now, because of heights differences, size differences, ability to breathe different, different atmospheres, uh, conversational environments can be anything from a table with chairs on it 
or a very large table with a very little table on top of it, or a table in front of a, a cube that has a different gaseous or liquid environment in it. Uh, anything about that you can imagine that would be required or necessary for two different species to communicate with each other. And this is a place, uh, a room that is full or nearly full every time that I have been there. So pretty much 24, seven, 365, there are meetings and negotiations and discussions being uh, had by a number of species talking about treaties, talking about each other, talking about trade negotiations. And uh, as a, completely neutral and safe environment uh, in which these conversations can be had. So what's the average height of, of the species and what determines how tall a species get? Is it something to do with their environment where they're, they're raised or created? Or? It has to do with a lot of different things from what I'm told. Uh, it is a factor of the size of the planet itself, the gravitational pull of the planet itself as well as different aspects of evolution as far as what subspecies that more advanced species evolved from. So it's, it's a wide variety of reasons that can affect size. The average height, I'm told, uh, at least throughout our galaxy, is about 16 to 20 feet tall. So we're, we're actually a little on the small side. We're not as small as I've seen. I've seen 18 inches high. Uh, nor, but I, but you know, the largest I've seen is probably close to 70, 75 feet tall. So they're pretty big. You, you, you can have this pretty wide range, but average I'm told is about 16 to 20 feet. Wow. And so how did we get this variety of species? Do you have a, an origin story? Like what were the first species that were created in, in the continuum of existence and how did we get so, so diversified? That's a very good question. And I would suggest that people who have done some uh, study on this and have listened to people at NASA or astrophysicists talk about this would say that the Goldilocks zone is incredibly important for life to develop, that you have to have this sweet spot of temperature and pressure and water. And I would suggest, based on what I know, that that is absolute bollocks that the real answer is that life will wherever it can, however it can, in any way that it can. So the ability for life to form in a variety of places way outside the Goldilocks zone is far more mm -hmm. predominant than those people would think that it is. So it's, in, it's, it's just very likely under a number of circumstances, given enough time, life will form somewhere. But it also turns out that there are a few species that are millions of years old that have been around for a very long time and have taken it upon themselves to assist this process. So it's not just a process of natural evolution either. In many cases, there is at least one or more species who are tinkering with the evolution of life in order to help it develop in a more positive uh, evolutionary direction. So it's a combination of life will wherever it can, however it can, and having some very ancient uh, let's just call them parents and grandparent species who have an interest in seeing all the little species grow up to be healthy, functional grown-ups. So who are the older species? Which ones are that are doing this genetic engineering? 
Um, I know of two. There are more than that, but I know of two. Uh, one is a species that we refer to as the bronze ones or the children of light. And they're called the bronze ones because that's the color of their skin. They're kind of a orangishy, bronzy, copper color. And then there is another species uh, that is evolved from a tree frog millions and millions of years ago uh, that come from a... I always forget which is they're the Trogda Bogdians. And I want to, for, I think the star system is Bogdia and the planet is called Trogda. Wow. It's a red star. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a red, it's a red star. Uh, so the planet is a pretty good distance away from the star itself, but they evolved from a tree frog. But again, many, many millions of years ago, they, they became very evolved. Where, many millions of years. where is that the word from Troglodytes? Oh, troglodytes uh, refer to a subterranean species uh, that live uh, here on Earth uh, beneath us. So there are a number of species that habitat the lower parts of the Earth, the honeycomb Earth, and troglodytes uh, would be one of those species. Thank you. Oh, wow. So, so we have a tree frog that developed on some planet millions and millions of years ago, which evolved into a, a Bogdia, Trogda Bogdia species. But we have tree frogs here. How does that happen? Well, that again, we it's, it's just an... Right, and it, again, it, there, there's... Right, there is some of that. There is some of the seeding of life and there's just some of the truth that while there is a wide variety of evolutionary possibilities, there's also a lot of possible outcomes that repeat themselves throughout the universe. So we just tend to find, I mean, we tend to find a wide, wide, I, I want to emphasize an incredibly wide variety of living species, but we tend to find a lot of the basic species within that larger brackets to repeat in different uh types again and again and again so there are human species uh partially because of seeding and partially because of the way in which other primates have been evolved so that you know you could travel all over the galaxy and run into humanoid human humanoid species that are incredibly incredibly like the people that you and i see walking up and down the street with some physiological differences in very much the, the way the Gene Roddenberry universe really due to the limitations of costuming and makeup and human actors tends to have uh, species that look very much like us, only slightly different. That's true in that there are many species that are in that variation, but I would also suggest you have species far outside that variation uh, of many, many different varieties of life that evolved from a number of different things, including silicon-based species, not just carbon-based species, other elemental-based uh, species that are based on a different elements and different system of sort of gases and elements and, and the way that a natural make of a planet might be. But you also, again, have these repetitions that occur throughout the known universe where you see the same things repeat again and again and again. But that again, that bracket of those things that are repeating themselves are vast, quite vast. That's very interesting. Now, I was shown, and this might be something like what, what you're talking about, the space station. There are probably other stations, but I was shown a 
a huge arena that seated 100,000 beings, different species. And in, the, in this, uh, they all had like some kind of eyes and some kind of hands, and they, most of them were bipedal or they, couldn't, they were mobile. And uh, they, they were telling me that they didn't want to scare me, so they didn't subject me to the, lots of, you know, that, my, that I may perceive as monsters looking. They were all kind of within a range. Uh, I guess they could share an environment as well because it seemed like we were uh, in one big sphere, but they might have had little, you know, separate, separate breathers or whatever they had, like you were talking about. Now, um, and that appeared to be like a United Nations of, of species. Is there such a thing as that? Like where they all get together and, and I was reporting what it was like to be a, a human female on the planet Earth at the beginning of the 21st century. And they, they asked me kind of to report what that was like. Um, there's at least uh, a dozen different intergalactic consortiums that I'm aware of that that could be a representation of. So it isn't like there's one group of intergalactic universal uh, beings that get together to form these, you know, larger uh, legislative bodies. There's a number of them, but that would describe at least one or more of them, certainly. Yeah, they said it wasn't limited to just that gathering. That was just the species that, that was just a sampling of the species that I could relate to without kind of right. freaking out. And they wanted to make sure I was comfortable. So, right. now let's go back to the space station. Are there more than that, more than one space station in our solar system? Or this one is just one that is kind of like uh, Deep Space Nine. And how big is it? Um, the, this particular station run by the Commerce Consortium is the only one in our solar system that I'm aware of or that I've ever been to. I've certainly not been made aware of that there's another one. So I, I will have to answer that question. To my knowledge, it's the only one in our solar system. And again, it's mm -hmm. about a mile wide. And uh, the main room, again, is probably you know about a mile in diameter, about 100 feet tall, and then there are several floors below that that I would say extend maybe another dozen levels, which are of varying sizes. So it's probably, I don't know what I would call it, probably the equivalent of, you know, maybe a six or eight story building uh, that extends below that main room. So it has the, the lower portion and then the upper portion. So, and it's all about a mile, mile and a half in diameter at the, at the base. Do, do beings uh, stay there? Did you stay there? Yeah, go ahead. Um, question, there, there are beings who are stationed there, who, who I'm, my understanding is they, they live there and or live on ships that are parked right outside of the station and they commute back and forth to the station to quote unquote go to work. And all mm -hmm. the other species... Uh, can be accommodated in a number of ways uh, at that station. But there isn't, from my understanding, there isn't like a bunch of hotel rooms or something because it's, space is sort of limited uh, in that sense mm -hmm. to communication. And everyone pretty much shows up on a self-contained ship that, you know, is their own uh, residence to live on and can just commute back and forth or go back and forth as needed. When if they that were meeting, did they eat? Did they did they eat food? Did they drink? And then you're, uh, we'll go to your question. When they were meeting, did they cup, you know have a cup of coffee? There, <laughs> there's no there's no eating of food because uh, different species eat different things that can be very offensive to other species, including 
life forms that are similar to other species. So there's no food mm-hmm. served in the open. However, there is uh, water because there turns out a lot of people just drink water as well as uh, a number of what I would say are non-alcoholic uh, fruit-based beverages, we'll call them. Okay. Go ahead, honey. Ask your question. I just wonder, do you have baseball leagues? Do you get to hang out? What's your social life like? Do you have buddies that you stick together with? What you know, What's life like? Um, well, when I was stationed on the Nautilus, we didn't have a baseball team, uh, and we were limited to the flight deck section, but I certainly got to socialize and hang out with the other pilots, and we... Uh, occasionally got to go to Liberty, uh, which was a, a station or, or someplace that was not aboard the ship, which sometimes there was alcoholic beverages that were served that we could drink. Uh, but on board, the, we were not allowed to drink uh, alcohol, and we, but we were allowed to socialize. And we played a lot of cards in our off time, to be honest with you. Played a lot of cards. On <laughs> um, the panel, you talked about... About the dog species, your interaction right, the with that. Major. Yeah, tell us about that. That was fun. Well, so we were at a meeting with the Canis Major Ambassador and his staff, which was, uh, I believe, just the four of them, and there were four of us, and we were sitting at a table, and they stand about five and a half feet tall, and they, their, their uniform of the their ambassadorial corps is a charcoal gray robe with a red fringe, and uh, they have evolved in such a way on their own planet that's not unlike the way in which we have bred species of dogs over time, so that they have evolved into a number of what they would refer to as subracial groups which look like different dog species. So there was, uh, you know, the, the ambassador was looked a lot like a German shepherd. And there was another one of his assistants who looked a lot like a Cocker Spaniel. And I say a lot like, I'm not going to say exactly like, because they weren't exactly mm-hmm. like, but they looked a lot like, uh, and another one that had a, looked like a sheep dog, and another one that had uh, sort of a Labrador uh, kind of appearance. And again, sort of. That's the best I can, I can do. And they were absolutely fascinating. Anyone who's ever known anyone who has ever had a husky knows that they don't bark. They talk. They go, raw, 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 raw. You know, they, they really talk. Mm-hmm. And that is how they spoke. They had this kind of, raw, 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 you know, way of speaking. We had a trans, uh, a computer translator box on the middle of the table that would translate as we spoke. It would translate into Canis Major, into dog speak. And when they would speak, it would translate back into English. And we sat there discussing... Uh, it was not a trade negotiation. It was an, an early, um, get to know you kind of negotiation uh, conversation. So when species are just getting familiar with each other, it's not uncommon to have lots and lots of these conversations between the ambassadorial corps where they just, just talk, just talk about who are you? Where do you come from? Tell us about your planet. We'll tell you about our planet. There really are just these very general get to know you kind of conversations that anybody might have trying to get to know someone. 
except the intent is to get to know a, a whole other species in such a way that you can then go back to the people that you work for and make a report to them. And they have people that they work for that they want to go back to and make a report to. So we were just sitting there having this very uh, casual get to know you conversation. And the uh, ambassador's um, assistant who had the looked sort of like a cocker spaniel, had these sort of cocker spaniel ears, which people know what a cocker spaniel is. They have these very soft, floppy ears. And we as human beings living around dogs the way most of us have, if most of us have grown up around dogs, which a lot of people have, when you see a dog, sometimes your immediate reaction is to want to reach out and scratch it behind the ears because we know that they like that. And you go, oh, who's a good boy? And so I found myself staring intently at these ears going, wow, those look just like the ears of a cocker spaniel. And then at some point found myself having to repress the urge to reach out and go, who's a good boy? Uh, and I, and I really like had to tell myself in my mind at one point was like, no, Randy, do not reach out and cause an intergalactic incident by scratching behind the ambassador's ears. That was very bad. But the instinct, because they're dog-like, was, was very strong to want to reach out and give them a pet. It was a very strange sensation because I don't know that they would have, I don't know that he would have appreciated it. Uh, but maybe if we knew each other better, you know, maybe he would have said, yeah, go ahead, scratch behind my ears. I don't know. I really don't know, but it was. Listen, Randy, Randy, he wanted to lick your face. He wanted to lick your face. <laughs> yeah, that's what it was. He was resisting that impulse to lick your face. Very possibly. Very, very possibly. Very possibly. So, Randy, how did you get to be on this station i mean were there other humans were you the only one i mean how how would that what happened that you got so, selected to go there I was very, very fortunate. When I was stationed aboard the Nautilus as a pilot uh, the last few years of my career, I was the only uh, officer on board that had uh, years of infantry experience and therefore was highly skilled at hand-to-hand -hand combat. And because we're humans, we're a little paranoid. When we go places, we like to have a just-in-case guy. In case things get squirrely, we like to have someone who could... Uh, is good in a fight. But this is a completely neutral environment where there was never any violence. There was never any altercations of any kind. So if my, as it was explained to me anyway, my reason for being there was because I was the only officer on board that had hand-to-hand -hand combat experience. Uh, but it was absolutely never a requirement, never used, never needed. So I consider myself the most fortunate person in the world to have been there for a reason in which was absolutely never necessary for me to be there. But I got to be there anyway. You, you were the so sergeant-in-arms. Right. As it the were, yes. Right. As, again, yeah, as it were. Uh, but again, it was never, ever, ever even remotely necessary uh, for me to react or respond in that way. So I really just sat there and got to participate in the conversations and observe and observe the whole room, which was an absolutely fascinating uh, set of experiences. So how do how do they do security? You said they don't need security. So how is that? Is that are they telepathic? How do they know that somebody won't come in like they do here on Earth and do weird shit? 
Well, I think you know, the rules are pretty up. clear that if you do, you could just well get banned uh, from the facility, and no one wants to get banned from the facility. Uh, so, we're, and we're certainly talking about species who have at least evolved to the point of choosing the ones who are going to go and have positive interactions and not want to get into an argument or get into a fight uh, over something. So, I think a combination of the policing by the members of the commerce consortium themselves to ensure that it's a safe, neutral environment and the repercussions that if someone were to cause trouble, it could very well jeopardize their ability to participate in continuing events on the station. And no one would want that to happen for sure. And these are all people selected. I I'm, take this from the members of the ambassador corps that I worked with are selected for their even temper, their communication abilities. They're uh, not the type of people who are quick to rash thinking or rash actions. These are diplomats. So they're picked from some of the most even keeled, calm, rational, good communicators uh, of each species because that's where you want your ambassadors to be. You don't want your ambassadors to be people who are going to be hot-headed or get into a fight or be offended easily. You're going to pick people who are even-keeled, calm, uh, and good communicators and not likely to react uh, intensely, emotionally, no matter what happens. Uh, uh, did Solar so, Warden have a, an ambassador there? Did, did, uh, was, were we represented at all in these meetings? Uh, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I was a member of the Radiant Guardian fleet, and as I have said once or twice before, and I'll say it again just to clarify, there's an arbitrary line drawn down the middle of the solar system, and in the same way that here on Earth and the United States Navy has a Pacific fleet and an Atlantic fleet, an Atlantic there is, uh, we have Solar Warden and Radiant Guardian. And so they're just simply two halves of the fleet that are arbitrarily broken in half. And uh -huh. one patrols one half of the solar system and the other patrols the other half. And the ambassadorial corps, from my understanding, was not limited to the Radiant Guardian fleet, but was uh, outside of that of each fleet in and of itself. And the ambassadorial corps could be involved, uh, could be taking a ride on any ships uh, from either side and could end up using personnel from either fleet. So it, it's not the ambassador core to my knowledge was not exclusive to one fleet or the other. So you thank were you. saying at thank the, um, at the, um, thank you. You were saying at the, the bigger picture panel that we are, humanity is training with these, um, this consortium. We have products. You mentioned oh, yes. beer and clothes, children's clothing. For yeah. That are two are, our three biggest export exports are military technology, military hardware, uh, beer, and children's clothing. So how did that come about? How did humanity get involved in this trade? How do, how do they hide that money going off planet? Or how do they trade? Is it reduced to a monetary system or, or do we get like um, puppy dogs in exchange for beer? I mean, what's it, how's that work? There, there is an intergalactic economic standard. So there is an intergalactic uh, monetary unit that is used to factor in values of things, but it still comes down to individual species to figure out what they're willing to trade in exchange for what. So uh, that exchange rate or that numerical value isn't set in stone, as it were. It's more of a guiding, a guidepost or, or a guideline. Mm -hmm 
for how trade negotiations will go. So people will certainly sit there and discuss, well, you're talking about, you know, uh, a product or a, uh, a trade product that has a estimated value at so many intergalactic credits versus, you know, something that we have that's estimated at a value of so many, uh, intergalactic credits. And then that's where the negotiation comes in and people dicker over, well, we're, we're willing to let you have this much for that much, or we're willing to give this much for that much. And that's where negotiation comes in. Okay. So what I want to know about is what kind of fuels are bought and sold in this or traded in this system what are, what is used to make these things go well oh, yeah. my understanding is most of these most species who have been spacefaring for any length of time have developed uh one form or another of free energy technology so electron pumps zero point generators uh, you know things that usually are incredibly uh, cheap and or nearly free to generate power with are the dominant source of power as far as what creates electricity or what makes work happen in a, in a machine or on a device. So then it comes down to what, you know, uh, is it gold that makes the machines work because it can, it's so thin? Are there rare minerals that are especially valuable? What's, what, what's really valuable well, it turns out that gold is still really valuable because it is the one of the best conductors in the universe. And so it is used in electronic parts and components uh, where you want the best conductivity. So it's, it's used a lot in making various devices and machines. So gold is very valuable. Uh, mercury turns out to be very valuable because it's something that's used in a lot of these, uh, the magnetogravitic propulsion systems and these, some of these engines, uh, there is a, a precious metals or a rare metals trading system for sure. And we certainly are mining the uh, asteroid belt for some of these minerals and trading for some of these minerals. And again, it's based on estimated values of what something is estimated at versus what we have to trade for it and whether what we have to trade for it is to us of less value to something that's of more value for us to trade for. Is copper uh, valued? But just is copper valued oh, yeah. elsewhere? Is Absolutely. It, all the all the conductive metals have a higher value than most of the non-conductive metals. Yes. Okay. Uh, and the other thing I want to know about is crystals. Are are uh, and many of the uh, Anunnaki and others are they look at crystals as somehow being able to be supercomputers or something of that order do you know anything about that is that traded? oh yeah absolutely no they, they absolutely have the ability to hold incredible amounts of data and information within them depending on the purity and type of crystal so yeah that's absolutely a trade commodity as well mineral trade commodities are big thank you so how how do they decide which breweries or which clothing manufacturers uh, their clothes get end up going into space? Who who does well, that negotiation? My understanding is that the trade negotiations happen between the ambassadorial corps and then usually certain corporate representatives that then hand over these contracts to import export companies and the import export companies there are therefore responsible for fulfilling the contract so let's just say 
for example, that some import-export company gets a trade contract that means they have to somehow supply uh, a million gallons of beer uh, per year to another uh, to an extraterrestrial. Uh, group that is trading something in return. And so it is up to that import-export group to then go around uh, the planet and funnel uh, through a number of front companies, as it were, uh, to purchase that beer from companies around the world and ship them to a central location where they can then be shipped off world. And, you know, when they meet that quota of getting a million gallons then they fulfilled their end of the contract wow interesting that's you know that's a lot like the the amicia we're uh uh, getting buying all this getting all this italian wine and then then uh, loads of it what do we we buy from them What what do we get from them do you know what we like um a lot of different things a, a lot of different things. Um, I know that the medical beds that we were using in the MDF were being purchased from an extraterrestrial source. I know that the simulators that we were using were run by a, a central computing system that was also uh, purchased or traded from an extraterrestrial source because I, a couple of times I got to see our master sergeant uh, operating this machine and it was uh, had alien language written all over it and it was covered with post-it notes with the translations on it. So so that he could operate the machine because he, he couldn't read the language. So uh, our way, it, it wasn't manufactured for us in the sense that it had the English you know, buttons all over it, but it was manufactured mm-hmm. and we purchased it. And then someone took the time to translate every button and every switch and put a post-it note on it so that you knew what that button or that switch did. Amazing. Now, what about this false flag uh, scenario trying to get us, are are there efforts to get us up to this level where we can start engaging with, you know, there's so many experiencers that are engaging with them now. It's almost like disclosure, but the next level where they're going to be walking down the street. So I heard about the, the false flag things and these different scenarios of how to get us up to speed here. What do you know about that? Oh, you've, Tipped upon one of my favorite topics. So it because my brigadier general is one of the lead negotiator, excuse me, lead negotiators in this process. So he spends his days uh, traveling around the world, going to these meetings with these different groups of people that represent these different agencies, state governments, uh, corporate uh, consortiums and legislative bodies, military intelligence bodies to get to the conclusion of how are we going to have disclosure so that we can start the free-flowing movement of more material, more resources, more trade, excuse me, and more technology. And it becomes a little problematic in deciding how to do that because you have so many different people and so many different interests who are concerned that they're going to lose money or lose power or that someone else is going to get an unfair gain, as well as the general concern of, you know, we are right now we are experiencing some of the deepest uh, social, racial, and religious divisions that we've had in over a century. 
And there's a lot of people that really hate each other just because they're religiously, socially, or racially different from one another. So how would that impact if all of a sudden we had extraterrestrial species coming down to walk the sidewalks and, you know, would they be treated with an even greater disdain in some cases uh, than other subracial, social, or religious groups? And the answer is probably yes. So it is, that is why what is appearing to be right now is the number one uh, top of the list way of dealing with this is a hoax invasion. A uh, hoax invasion gets everybody on the same page, gets everybody to hate one species or one particular group, you know, with all of its heart, mind, body, and soul, and then gives us room to uh, see other species as friendly when they show up to help us fight off the invading species. So it uh, doesn't really matter what you think of it. The truth really is that we have two choices. We can either just allow it to happen with no tinkering whatsoever, and which is likely to create more chaos, more conflict, more social, racial, and religious hatred between even intergalactic species, or we can set up this uh, melodrama, as it were, and put all of our negative attention on one bad guy wearing a black hat, twirling his mustache, going, as it were, like a melodrama, which melodrama is about. Uh, and then that can give a lot of room for the ability for people to allow you know, their hatred to go one direction and therefore not be directed at everybody else. And so if we have a situation where one or more species helps us in this endeavor, well, then, you know, you, you see them walking down the street, you might want to walk up and go, dude, give me a high five for helping us beat off those bad aliens. And then you get a fist bump and a high five because you want to thank a species for being part of the solution, not part of the problem. But if they just kind of show up here, then they're just one more different group to be like, uh, freaking immigrants, you know, coming to buy our stuff and take our jobs and flirt with our women. Er, you know, that just gives more reason for people to focus on that kind of negativity. So I hate to say it, but we're still kind of primitive that if we don't lure or lead us in a particular direction, uh, it's just going to be more chaos. So I happen to be, have been converted to uh, being pro-hoax and alien invasion. I'm all for it. I'm all for it because I understand that the other options just don't work out as well. And there's actually a greater potential for greater violence, greater loss of life, greater conflict, and just not getting down the road any faster by doing it the other way. So I'm in favor of it because it really looks like it would be the best way for us to get this ball moved down the field and go forward with this. Is that what um, Reagan was talking about when he said, "Imagine this other species and of course, would yeah, be of course, like a, yeah, yeah, imagine, imagine how our differences, you know, would be put aside if we had a common threat from outside ourselves, and how we'd mm -hmm. all come together and work together to uh, protect humanity and the planet." And it's absolutely true. All of our psychological studies being done on that have shown that's absolutely true. Right now, you have groups of people who hate each other so bad, but if we had an alien invasion, you could have Christians and Muslims and Jews and Palestinians and white people and black people and Chinese people and other Asian people and every other group all sitting around the same fire pit, you know, going, 
<coughs> darn aliens. And then, you know, that's everybody being together instead of killing each other. So as, as bizarre as it might sound to some people, or even as, as distasteful as it might sound to some people, it brings a lot of people together who right now want to wipe each other off the face of the earth and would bring us together uh, and focus on a common enemy. What about the arrival scenario? I was given a arrival scenario. Now, arrival came out later that year. I forget what year that was, about three years ago. Um, right. You remember where they had 12 ships or something like that simultaneously right. around the, the world. And then that played out pretty good. But the one that I was shown was every there were ships everywhere. They had little ones over the little towns and bigger ones everywhere. And so simultaneously, everybody saw uh, beings everywhere or ships everywhere at the same time. Um, and that was a that was a very weird thing. It was like a download, and then um, it, it happened one night, and then they, they gave me part two two nights later. So it was like, okay, you want me to know this? Um, I don't know. I, I That alien invasion thing, I've heard it from uh, Stuart Swerdlow. It's accompanied with the second coming of Jesus. And, um, you know, I've heard from a number of, species, a number of people that... Um, you know, these religions were original kind of manipulation of mind control. There's, there is spirituality, there is consciousness, and that's why it anchors in. But uh, at some point, the truth behind all this stuff is going to come out. I've uh, heard where people like um, Linda Moulton Howe and Richard Hogan back in the day, they were shown the crucifixion of Jesus, you know, and that was some kind of preparation for disclosure and uh, revealing information. So what, what role do they... Uh, do these religious leaders, from you know, from your awareness, uh, play in this whole psychological manipulation of humanity, which created the original division and divide and conquer? Well, the problem there is something we call the uh, divided pie of social psychological demographics. So, an, a scenario, an arrival scenario, as we call, it, and which is not off the table. It is still possible that we could see the skies around the world blanketed with uh, extraterrestrial vehicles, and that that could be the beginning of a series of conversations with our political leaders and a, attention by the news media on it in such a way that is designed to lead us to a positive outcome. That's still on the table. It's just. I'll remind you that even in the movie Arrival, uh, you know, there were a number of military personnel that couldn't get a, their head around the idea that this was a peaceful thing and decided to blow up one of the alien ships and killed one of the extraterrestrial ambassadors. Luckily, the ETs in question were really good natured about it uh, and took it in stride. But, you know, there are maybe certain species, if people started killing their ambassadors, they might not take it so well. So I would suggest that that still is a scenario that comes with its problems and its flaws. But the main, one of the main problems is the social psychological demographics of those who are not really prepared to have their belief system shattered by someone showing up and saying, yeah, this is really how it is. And whatever you were taught, your, your, whatever your monotheistic system is that you were taught is kind of wrong. Uh, there, some of those people would take that very harshly and are likely to uh, react very violently and very harshly to anyone trying to tell them that their reality is wrong. And I would suggest that people just look around at what's happening now, uh, that there are groups who are in the same boat that, you know, you turn around and tell them, hey, sorry, your monotheism is wrong. Well, that's how we got the Islamic State. And that's how we have 
you know, different religious uh, militant fascists around the world who believe that their particular version of monotheism is above everyone else's version and uh, justifies different types of violence against other groups of people. So the social psychological demographics that divide up this whole pie of humanity, some of those slices of that pie are very narrow-minded, have very rigid belief systems, and would not likely go comfortably or not screaming into that kind of change. So we're doing our best to formulate a plan which minimizes those different social psychological demographics from losing their shit, as it were, pardon my French, and going crazy and blowing people up or committing mass suicides. We don't want that either. We don't want those religious groups deciding, well, if this is the world I'm going to live in, then it must be time for me to die and go be with my God. We don't really want that to happen either. So, because that can start a trend, that can start a really unhealthy trend that could get more and more people to commit suicide and violence against themselves, which again, we don't want, we think that's the negative outcome. What about, so there are, what about the day the air stood still scenario where they just uh, neutralized all weapons, even guns? Well, you know, they can neutralize the guns ones. and we can, yeah, and they can neutralize all the guns. That's that's absolutely something they can do from space. Uh, but that still doesn't mean that we can't start grabbing knives and clubs and stabbing and poisoning each other and trying to blow well, each other up with primitive level, explosives though. or each other down cars stabbing or whatever. Stabbing yourself so, is another level. <laughs> well, stabbing yourself just, is another you know, level. That takes another well, level. Well, yeah. poisoning, you know, uh, uh, religious groups throughout the 20th century and the yeah. 19th century when they felt it was the end of the world, you know, drank poison or there is right. a number, Jim there was a, a rash case. Yeah, and there was a rash case of uh, some churches that were rather extreme. I want to say it was in Switzerland that burnt themselves, you know, burnt themselves and their churches to the ground. We'll have to pick this up another time, Randy. This has been awesome. Thank you so uh, much. My well, pleasure. We ran out of time. Much love and blessings. Aloha. Thank Say aloha, Sasha. Thank you. Radio at freedomslips.com. We'll be right back after this message. Thank you for listening to Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. Any commercial advertising you may hear in this program is of the sole discretion and benefit of the host of whose program you are listening to. Revolution Radio does not endorse any commercial products, nor does it accept monetary compensation for on-air advertising of commercial products, nor will it ever. We are and shall remain 100% listener-supported. Any product advertising on this program are considered used at higher risk, and Revolution Radio shall not be held liable for any claims or damages received from any product advertised within this program. Revolution Radio, where information never sleeps.
Thanks for tuning in to Revolution Radio. Here at Revolution Radio, we are listener-sponsored and commercial-free. But there still are bills to pay. In order to raise some needed funds to cover the cost, our station is offering a silver special. In the continental United States for a $60 donation, or in Alaska, Hawaii, or Canada for a $70 donation, we will send you an uncirculated 2018 one-ounce pure silver eagle. The $70 donation, uh, the extra 10 is to cover shipping, by the way, outside of the continental United States. When making the donation, you must put Silver Eagle promo in the notes on the donation. And thank you for tuning in to Revolution Radio at revolution.radio and freedomslips.com. Without you, there is no less. Revolution Radio, where information never sleeps. Take a look around, kid. What do you see? Homes being foreclosed. People working two, three jobs just to put food on the table and still drowning in debt. Don't get me wrong. This country is founded on great ideals and principles. They've all been ruined by the banks. Open your eyes to the banks that are robbing you. You know who my favorite president was? Who? Thomas Jefferson. Because he saw all of this coming and tried to stop it. He fought the banks. JFK too, and they killed him for it. The banking institution is more dangerous than an army, he said. He also said that every generation needs a revolution, Jimmy. The American dream is just that. Just a dream. War is a continuation of politics. Only by other means. Politics is a continuation of economics by other means. This is our bank. 